What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome back to episode number five zero of Your Case is on Hold. We've made it to the big 50. Thank you. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary for the middle of January. So thanks for sticking with us all this time. Hopefully the information's fresh and we can keep you on your toes and give you some good live updates from JBJS on a biweekly basis. I'm Antonia Chen. I'm deputy editor of Adult Reconstruction. And we have here. I'm uh, Andrew Schoenfeld, deputy editor for Methods. And these opinions are all of our own. They do not represent the JBJS board or any other members of the editorial staff at JBJS. This is brought to you by the Miller Review course. So get your study on, get your learn on. There's a lot of information. A lot of the articles or information comes from JBJS. And if you're looking at taking part one or part two, you've got a lot of good information to come from the course. Without further ado, we're going to start top of the pile. What's new in adult reconstructive surgery by Villadol and it's permanently free. Clinical outcomes and complications of two-stage septic revision versus aseptic revision, total knee arthroplasty, a systematic review and meta-analyses by Kim et al. What's important? Having friends who don't look like you by Swanson. This is permanently free. Evaluation and management focus, Medicare, focused Medicare building threatens orthopedic surgical access for Medicare beneficiaries by Venkit. And now on to our headlines. Please tell us about, does fracture pattern really predict displacements of LC1 sacral fracture? By Liv C et al. And there's infographic on this. I know you couldn't sleep at night until this question was answered. It was a burning, burning question to me, especially since the first two articles were about knee arthroplasty. This is what I couldn't wait for. Uh, uh, just I like the entire, for the entire time that you've been in undergrad, residency, med school, fellowship, your 20 plus years as an attending, 30 years as a professor. Now, now you have the answer about fracture patterns and and sacral fracture displacement. Life is complete. Yep. You can stop. Research can stop. Mic drop moment? Uh, Maybe. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) All right. So um, this is a retrospective study conducted at uh, Shock Trauma in Baltimore. This is a retrospective review of the billing registry of this center. And they have 273 patients with high energy LC1 pelvic ring fractures and less than five millimeters of sacral displacement. 
The uh, fracture patterns were characterized using uh, CT scans and radiographs. And then they looked at uh, absolute and interval pelvic ring displacement, then developing a statistical model performed using MedCalc statistical software. Not that familiar with the software, but I'm not sure that that allows for programming that would enable uh, adjustment for potential confounding. And and certainly in their in their methodology uh, section, and that's that's really, you know, they're like, oh, here he goes talking about the methodology again. But when you're talking about prediction, that is the the quality of that prediction is implicitly resting on the quality of the model that's that's developed. And in this, they're talking about comparing proportions, correlation coefficients, all what we would call bivariate, simple, unadjusted. So, you know, there's there's high potential for confounding. Further, they only have 35 uh, displacement events. And the rate of displacement was only 15 of 49 for LC1 injuries involving a complete sacral fracture and bilateral ramus fracture, 7 of 58 for those involving a complete sacral fracture and unilateral ramus fracture, 5 of 52 for incomplete. So you can see that, you know, even amongst that 35, it then breaks down into much, much smaller numbers. So you can't adjust for the mechanism of injury. You can't adjust for the fracture pattern. You you know, these are all just simple unadjusted comparisons that can't assess for the interaction with each other. So they say that fracture characteristics can be used to predict the likelihood of displacement of LC1 fractures. This is the first to describe the magnitude of displacement that may occur in association. So, you know, I, I had a mentor who said, do it first or do it best. In this case, they did it first. And um, that you know does add some value uh i think in this space that said you know what we're really getting at here is they do properly grade it as a level 4 study the main concern here is is translational if you see a fracture pattern like this in an individual with a low velocity fall with a high uh issue around bow density versus you see this in somebody who you know was driving 100 miles an hour on like a Kawasaki and went, you know, flying a thousand feet or something like that, the risks may be different. Just that's not accounted for in, in, in any of this. And, you know, when we look at their table one, they have male, female, they have mechanism, they have the fracture patterns and not much else. Not changing your practice. Uh, I don't see how like you could advocate that this is going to change practice in, in any context. I think this is what we would typically refer to as hypothesis generating work. You know, again, it gets to the fact that, you know, they're saying it's the first to describe the magnitude X, Y, and Z, but it's a very small number of patients that actually had displacement. And, you know, while these are not especially common injuries, you have 273 patients in, in total. But then once you break it down into the subgroups, each of those subgroups is is a lot is a much smaller number. So there are a lot of parameters that need to be addressed. I think that you know this could be a starting point for something that is uh, multi institutional. Get a larger something through the OTA going. I would I would really want to see adjusted analyses that are accounting for baseline risk, other factors such as you know ability and proclivity to mobilize and and um, you know, not respect whatever restrictions may be in place that then ultimately lead to to these events uh, where the the fracture um, displaces further. So, I mean, I, I don't. I, other than this being like a starting point, 
I don't see how a case could be made that this is sort of a ready-to-go model that can be applied to clinical practice anywhere. But it is a good starting point, I will say. Yep. Yep. Start off with it, run with it, and if you're listening, try to take it to the next level. There you go. I like it. All right. Mine is going to be on unipolar hemiantoplasty, bipolar hemiantoplasty, or total hip arthroplasty for hip fracture in older individuals. Now, Kiki et al., there's an infographic on this one as well, too. I'm all for these age-old questions. So we ask, what's better when for- When you say age-old, you mean we've heard this research study before. This is not a new one, I will have to admit. So we've looked at unipolar, bipolar, total hip arthroplasty for hip fractures. And these are in different databases. So at some point in time, someone will do a, probably a systematic review or meta-analysis to congregate or aggregate all this data together to come up with another conclusion. So this does add to the literature because it's using the Kaiser database. So this is a US-based registry. Um, We don't have one insurance company, obviously, is well known. We do have Medicare, but that um, does only encompass a certain population, portion of the population, whereas Kaiser does encapsulate a captured population over 12 million people. So What we're looking for is what's better for hip fracture fixation in older individuals. And as I get older, the definition of older goes up. I used to think 35 was old when I was a little kid. Well, guess what? 35 is not old anymore. (laughs) So this study defines older patients as 60 years old and older who underwent unipolar, bipolar, amyotoplasty, or total arthroplasty for hip fracture from 2009 to 2021. And the purpose of the study was to investigate the patient characteristics for which unipolar hemiarthroplasty, bipolar hemiarthroplasty, or total hip arthroplasty might be preferable based on a lower risk of all-cause revisions. So I was hopeful that there'd be a lot of patient characteristics that could come out of here that would be like, you know what, based on this, I should use this for my patient. But they didn't look as many factors as I thought they would. They looked just at age and uh, ASA characteristics, um, but there are many, many other characteristics, obviously, that can determine whether or not a patient should undergo which one of these procedures. Again, we use the Kaiser Permented database, and they lumped unipolar and bipolar together and compared it with total hip arthroplasty, but they did separate them out. And they looked at age categories of 60 to 79 versus 80 and above, and then ASA classifications are one or two versus three. And there's a lot of exclusion cases if there are biological hip fractures, sorry, bilateral hip fractures, pathological fractures, open fractures, polytrauma, additional procedures, or prior surgery on the affected hip. They also remove patients who have metastatic cancer, paralysis, of an, or an ASA classification greater than four because they said it was unlikely that they would undergo a total hip arthroplasty in these patients. And they were also excluded if they received a femoral stem usually used in the infection or revision setting in a non-conventional total hip arthroplasty. They did use multivariable Cox proportional hazard regression analysis to evaluate all cause revisions, and they adjusted for a variety of confounders, not surprisingly gender, BMI, race, ethnicity, smoking status, diabetes, Ellixhauser, comorbidities, time from admission to surgery, anesthesia type, cement use, and operative time. And they used mortality as a competing risk. Now, using revision is pretty commonly used, but it's not necessarily the most ideal endpoint in this patient population. For example, if a patient dislocates because of instability and their clothes reduced, that may not register because it's not considered a revision or changing of parts. Um, There's also multiple reasons to revise or not revise. So if a patient comes in with a hemiartoplasty and has pain, you might be more willing to revise because you can revise to a total hip whether or not it addresses their pain, we don't know that. Versus if there's a total hip replacement and it looks good but feels bad, you may not want to revise that. Given this large database, it had a total of over 14,000 patients, of which there were 
70, over 7,500 unipolar hemiotoplasties, almost over 5,400 bipolar hemiotoplasties, and only over 1,200 total hypotoplasties. There were much less total hypotoplasties in this patient population compared to unipolar and bipolar hemiotoplasties. In comparison to patients who underwent hemiotoplasty, those who underwent total hypotoplasty tended to be younger and have fewer comorbidities, and total hip procedure most commonly performed under regional anesthesia. They did take longer and use cement less frequently than the other two procedures. So bipolar and unipolar hemiotoplasty use more cement in their procedures, which is probably not surprising. When looking at multivariable analysis of all patients, both bipolar and unipolar hemiotoplasty had a higher revision risk than total hypotoplasty, but there was no difference in all-cause revision risk between unipolar and bipolar hemiotoplasty. When they looked at age-stratified multivariable analysis, again, looking at patients from 60 to 79 years old, again, unipolar and bipolar hemiotoplasty had higher revision rates than total hypotoplasty. Bipolar trended towards a lower revision rate of all-cause revisions for patients between the age of 60 to 79, but not significantly so. Looking at ASA-stratified multivariable analysis, patients with an ASA classification of one or two had a higher revision rate after either unipolar or bipolar at, compared to total hip arthroplasty. And, and bipolar had a lower risk of all-cause revision than unipolar hemiplasty in patients with an ASA classification of one or two. There was no difference in revision rates between either of the hemiarthroplasties and total hypoarthroplasty in patients who are greater than 80 or those with an ASA classification of three. So the conclusion was total hypoarthroplasty was associated with fewer revisions compared with unipolar and bipolar hemiarthroplasties in patients who were between the ages of 60 to 79 or an ASA classification of one or two. But it didn't take into account a lot of other factors that we look at when we compare hemiarthroplasty versus total arthroplasty, such as what type of implants were used, Cemented versus cementless, even though they say they took it into consideration. Dual mobility, which can reduce uh, uh, dislocation risk. Surgical approach. So while nice, it's not granular enough, I'd say, to really give us the data that we need to say, this is the implant that we want for each person. I'm hopeful that in the future, that more studies will be more prescriptive and say, hey, look, based on these characteristics of the patient and incorporate a lot of different variables, this is the implant that you should use to give the best outcomes, whether that's a patient-reported outcome, whether that's revision, whether it's reduced mortality, whatever it is, that'd be really nice to be able to um, bring in our patients. Yes, I, I agree. Um... You know, the conclusion basically just restates the results, which, you know, you'd like to see. So, okay, what does this mean for patient care and clinical practice, especially in the context of, as we discussed many a time, those who are eligible for total hip aren't, or rather those who get unipolar and bipolar may not always be eligible for a total hip. And that's the other factor, right? Just be, it doesn't mean it's a one size fit all. You're not randomizing them into those groups. And that's the numbers really demonstrate that. There's a disproportionate number of hemiarthroplasties in this group. Next one is central, this is your case on Hailed featurette. Central sensitization and neuropathic pain cumulatively affect patients reporting inferior outcomes following total neuroarthroplasty by Kim et al. There's a commentary, there's a visual summary, and it is permanently free. So the idea is not all patients do well after total knee replacement when we wish they did and hope they did. Why is that? Some patients have persistent pain. And there are hypotheses that central, center, central sensitization and neuropathic pain may be reasons why patients have persistent pain after total neuroarthroplasty. Central central, I will get this right. Central 
sensitization is defined as an amplification of neural signals within the central nervous system resulting in pain hypersensitivity, while neuropathic pain, a little bit different, is defined as pain caused by nerve damage. Both of these conditions have been shown to be have shown been to correlated with inferior clinical results after spine and hip surgery. So the goal of this study was to investigate the relationship between central sensitization and neuropathic pain and patient-reported outcomes, specifically WOMAC, in patients undergoing total knee arthroplasty. Patients were included between May 2019 and February 2020, with a minimum of two-year follow-up, and their exclusion criteria included ASA status of three or higher, a history of drug or alcohol abuse, opiate medication within one month before surgery, a history of psych disorders, peripheral disease, and the presence of a concurrent serious medical condition. I'm not quite sure what a serious medical condition is, and if it was something active, would they be undergoing a total knee replacement? But they left that as one of the criteria. The patient population was 316 total knee replacements for total knee arthroplasty. They were mostly Asians, Koreans, and they were 88% women. The central, sensi- the central sensitization was defined as a score of greater than 40 on the central sensitization inventory. And neuropathic pain was defined as a score greater than 19 on this pain detect questionnaire, also known as the PDQ. They had four groups of patients. The first group of patients had both conditions, which comprised almost 17, a little more than 17% of the population. Group two had central sensitization only, and they had 21.5% of the population. Group three had neuropathic pain only at 11.1% of the population. And group four had neither of these conditions, which was 50% of the population. So 50% of the population had some diagnoses that fit into this sensitization or neuropathic pain group. They looked at Womack preoperatively and at two years, so they had a minimum of two-year follow-up. And all patients improved Womack after surgery. And study after study has shown that total knee arthroplasty alone does improve Womack after surgery. Both the central sensitization and the PDQ scores showed significant correlations with the WOMAC total scores preoperatively and at two years postoperatively, and there was no significant correlation between the CSI and the PDQ score and the severity of knee osteoarthritis. Preoperatively, patients who were in groups one, two, and three had worse WOMAC pain, function, and total scores compared to group four patients, and group four patients had a higher rate of achieving of achieving minimal clinical um, differences. At two years postoperatively, group one had inferior Womack function, pain, and total scores compared with all other groups. Additionally, at two years, groups two and three had worst Womack pain, function, and total scores compared to group four. So group four did better than all of them, and then group two and three did better than group one. So if you had either condition, you were likely to not do as well as if you had both conditions. Group four had higher satisfaction and lower opioid consumption, looking at PCAs. We don't really use PCAs that much anymore. There were no major complications for each group, and they included MUA with it. So they said that central sensitization and neuropathic pain were associated with inferior PROMs following total neuroplasty, and it'd be good to screen patients before surgery, such as setting expectations, providing education, potentially using centrally acting agents or behavior therapy before surgery to try to address their central sensitization or neuropathic pain before surgery to give them better outcomes after total knee replacements. Womack was the only prom that they used. I would like to see other prompts to really understand the outcomes here. And ideally, they would like to assess other metrics as well, such as range of motion, which impact the outcomes after surgery, uh, and not just prompts. So it's an interesting study to look at central sensitization and be cognizant of this in our patients, but it's not a questionnaire that I'll probably administer to most of my patients. Yeah, I think as far as, you know, central sensitization and neuropathic pain or patients who exhibit complex regional pain syndrome, 
certainly if they're having these kinds of issues before the knee replacement, I think you're, you already have to kind of counsel them that the outcomes are going to be diminished relative to what they would be without those conditions. If they developed it after the fact, I think it's you know an unfortunate occurrence and no surprise that they're not going to achieve the same level. Interesting study. You know, I'm a little bit curious on the population because you know they talk about they have 316 patients and then 50% of them have central sensitization or neuropathic pain. I I don't think that you know if we sampled 50% of the patients that you could do a total knee on, half of them are going to have this condition, right? Like this just seems awfully high. It seems pretty high. I wonder if it's the women in Korea. I don't know. So it's a different population. This is something that actually is interesting from a research perspective, right? Do the exact same study in a different setting and see what the percentages come as. Yeah. If you're listening, I think that's a readily actionable research idea. I love it. We can make that happen. All right. Continuing on here. Looking at honorable mentions, hip morphology on post-reduction MRI predicts residual dysplasia 10 years after open or closed reduction by Charles Manzer with a commentary and it's 30 days free. The idea here is that coronal femoral acetabular distance, a quantitative metric assessing the reduction's concentricity, and limbus thickness, a quantitative metric assessing the acetabulum's cartilaginous component, can help to predict hips that will have residual acetabular dysplasia in the long term after closed or open reduction. Specifying the start point for S1 iliosacral screw placement in the dysmorphic sacrum by Kayadal, on the lateral view of the dysmorphic sacrum, the ossification of the S1 and S2 intervertebral disc and posterior vertebral cortical line are visible and intersect at a point that is consistently below the iliac cortical density and in the oblique osseous corridor and can be used to identify the starting point for S1 iliosacral screw placement in dysmorphic sacrums. The modified FELS and abbreviated modified FELS knee skeletal maturity system in the prediction of limb of leg length discrepancy by Cluck et al. The modified FELS and abbreviated modified FELS knee system were able to predict skeletal maturity using 20 knee radiographs without needing separate hand radiographs. Interclass correlation coefficients range from 0.55 to 0.98, and kappa coefficients for the five qualitative variables range from 0.56 to 1. Prediction errors, errors in both of these skeletal maturity systems were clinically comparable to those in the GP skeletal ages in the epiphysiodesis cohort. And finally, development assessment of a patient journey guide for adult traumatic brachial plexus injury by Navarro et al. The idea is that patients who underwent adult traumatic brachial plexus injury really don't have any guidance or education. So these authors created a journey guide, a traumatic brachial plexus injury-specific educational tool to address deficiencies in patient education. They showed this to 19 participants who had a primarily positive view of the guide and identified four major themes. Number one was visuals and quotes improve clarity and engagement. Number two, the journey guide would be most useful immediately following an injury. Number three, the journey guide is an effective organizational tool. And number four is difficult to orient patients towards future hardships. There you've had it. Welcome to episode number 50. We've hit the big five zero as this milestone. We thank you for being along for the ride and we look forward to more. Thanks a lot, everybody. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com 
and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL.